You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hollywood in the 1920s was haunted by a number of scandals, like the murder of director William Desmond Taylor and the alleged fatal sexual assault by movie star Fatty Arbuckle, which brought widespread condemnation from religious, civic, and political organizations. Pressure was increasing, with legislators in 37 states introducing almost 100 movie censorship bills in 1921. Faced with the prospect of having to comply with hundreds of local decency laws in order to show their movies, the studios chose self-regulation by way of a single church official. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The movie studios enlisted Presbyterian elder Will H. Hayes to rehabilitate Hollywood's image. Hayes, postmaster general under Warren G. Harding and former head of the Republican National Committee, was paid a lavish sum equivalent to $1.4 million in today's money. Hayes served for 25 years as president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, where he, quote, defended the industry from attacks and negotiated treaties to cease hostilities. The move mimicked the decision Major League Baseball had made in hiring Judge Kennesaw Landis as league commissioner the previous year to quell questions about the integrity of baseball in the wake of the 1919 World Series gambling scandal. That was the one you might have seen dramatized in the 1988 movie Eight Men Out. The Supreme Court had already decided unanimously in 1915 in Mutual Film Corporation v. Industry Commission of Ohio that free speech did not extend to motion pictures. The movies, the courts ruled, were a business like any other, and therefore states should be allowed to regulate, license, and censor motion pictures as an exercise of police power to protect the social welfare of a community. New York became the first state to take advantage of the Supreme Court's decision by instituting a censorship board in 1921, with other states following soon thereafter. Movie makers were looking at the possibility that many states and cities would adopt their own codes of censorship, requiring multiple versions of the film to be made for national distribution. Self-censorship seemed a preferable alternative. In 1924, Hayes introduced a set of recommendations dubbed the formula, which the studios were advised to heed, and he instructed filmmakers to notify his office about the plots of movies before they were made. In 1927, Hayes suggested to studio executives that they form a committee to discuss film censorship, which the heads of MGM, Fox, and Paramount did. They collaborated on a list called the Don'ts and Be Carefuls, 11 subjects to avoid, and 26 to handle very carefully, 
based on things that were challenged by local censor boards. The list was approved by the Federal Trade Commission. However, there was no way in place to enforce its tenets. Here are most of the don'ts and be carefuls. Resolved that those things which are included in the following list shall not appear in pictures produced by the members of this association, irrespective of the manner in which they are treated. Pointed profanity by either title or lip. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless in connection with proper religious ceremony, hell, damn, God, spelled G-A-W-D, and other profane and vulgar expressions, however it may be spelled. Any licentious or suggestive nudity, in fact or in silhouette, and any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture. The illegal traffic in drugs. Any inference of sexual perversion. White slavery. Miscegenation, which is sexual relationships between the white and black races. Sexual hygiene and venereal disease, because who would need to know about that? Scenes of actual childbirth, in fact or in silhouette. And children's sex organs. That one's sensible, at least. And be it further resolved that special care be exercised in the manner in which the following subjects are treated, to the end that vulgarity and suggestiveness may be eliminated, and that good taste may be emphasized. The use of the flag. Arson. The use of firearms. Theft, robbery, safe-cracking, and dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc., having in mind the effect which a too detailed description of these may have upon the moron. That is a direct quote. Brutality and possible gruesomeness. Technique of committing murder by whatever method. Methods of smuggling. Third degree, meaning violent interrogation. Actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishment for crime. Sedition. Apparent cruelty to children and animals. I notice women are left off that list. Branding of people and animals. The sale of women or of a woman selling her virtue. Rape or attempted rape. Scenes of consummation. Man and woman in bed together. Deliberate seduction of girls. Surgical operations. The use of drugs. Excessive or lustful kissing, particularly when one character or the other is a heavy. Heavy, in this case, means a bad guy. This was the precursor to the 1930 Motion Picture Code, which was suggested to the studio heads by a Catholic layman and a Jesuit priest. The recently formed Studio Relations Committee was responsible for supervising film production and advising the studios when changes were required, though local censor boards still held considerable authority. The code was divided into two parts. The first was a set of general principles, which prohibited a picture from Quote, lowering the moral standard of those who see it, calling for depictions of the correct standards of life, and forbade a picture to show any sort of ridicule towards the law or creating sympathy for its violation. The second part was a set of particular applications, which was an exacting list of items that could not be depicted. Some restrictions, such as the ban on homosexuality, or on the use of specific curse words, were assumed to be understood. 
The code sought not only to determine what could be portrayed on the screen, but to promote traditional values. Sexual relations outside marriage were forbidden to be portrayed as attractive or beautiful so as not to arouse passion or make them seem permissible. All criminal action had to be punished, and neither the crime nor the criminal could elicit sympathy from the audience. Authority figures had to be treated with respect, and the clergy could not be portrayed as comic characters or villains. The entire document was written with Catholic undertones. A recurring theme was that, quote, throughout, the audience feels sure that evil is wrong and good is right. The code also contained an addendum commonly referred to as the Advertising Code, which regulated advertising copy and imagery. Initially, Hayes' regulators had little power of enforcement, which likely led Catholic groups to form the Legion of Decency in 1933, which crusaded against Hollywood as a moral threat to the nation. Tell me Legion of Decency does not sound like a Christian rock band or the worst wrestling tag team ever. The Legion was formed ostensibly to put pressure on industry moguls to follow the production code, but would hold more sway in the 30s and 40s than the MPAA or local censors. Through protests and boycotts, the Legion would essentially force the industry to comply, since these actions shut down theaters completely, stopping all ticket revenue. Some Hollywood studios chose to comply rather than face bankruptcy. The Legion's purpose, in practice, became the classification and review of motion pictures by a panel of priests and laymen selected by the bishops. A Legion classification of B meant that a film is morally objectionable. A C rating gave a film the feared condemned status, and protests by Catholic groups were soon to follow. Joseph Breen, who took over for Hayes in 1934, actually worked closely with the Legion of Decency and the United States Bishops' Conference. During Breen's tenure, 25,000 films went through his censorship. Pope Pius XI eventually made Breen a Knight Commander of the Order of St. Gregory. The Legion's influence didn't begin to wane until 1953, with the controversy over the charming comedy The Moon is Blue, the first movie to use the words seduce, pregnant, and virgin in a motion picture. Appellate judges were overturning more and more local bans, and even within the Legion, they couldn't agree that the film needed to be condemned. But they did anyway. In 1954, Breen came head-to-head -head with Howard Hughes, who put his film The French Line, a 3D movie starring the curvaceous Jane Russell, into some theaters without the Legion's rating. The Legion pushed back by sending a letter to every church to be read out loud on that following Sunday, condemning the film for its salaciousness and forbidding attendance under pain of mortal sin. Hughes adjusted and cut the film according to the censorship restrictions of the areas where he wanted it released. He actually cut more than Breen requested in some areas. With the edited version, though, the crowds thin, and he lost bookings in many areas. Remember that this was almost 20 years before movies were released across the country all at the same time. The Legion would lose most of its remaining power by the 1960s, 
when changing social mores made it clear that they could no longer agree within their group on what was moral entertainment, and that they were no better at making that judgment than any other segment of the population. I'd like to take a break from all this censorship to offer my sincere gratitude to our very first Patreon patron. Thanks to Council of Geeks for supporting the show. If you'd like to help defray the costs of making Your Brain on Facts, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Even a donation of $2 a month will help to keep the show going. If you'd like to support the show with something other than money, there's no better way than by sharing us on your social media. In addition to going to Facebook or Instagram.com slash YourBrainOnFacts or Twitter.com slash BrainOnFactsPod, you can probably share it right from the app you're listening in now. Many of the apps have the functionality of swiping up on the listening screen to provide you with your sharing options. No fuss, no muss. About the time that Breen came to power, the Federal Communications Commission was created to police radio and later television. Regulating communications had been important to ensure that the military, emergency responders, police, and entertainment companies were all able to get their signals out without interference. The Radio Act of 1912 helped to establish the commission that would designate which airways would be for public use and which would be reserved for the various commercial users who needed them. In 1926, the Federal Radio Commission was established to help handle the growing complexities of the nation's airwaves. In 1934, Congress passed the Communications Act, which replaced the Federal Radio Commission with the Federal Communications Commission. The Communications Act also put telephone communication under the FCC's control, which was a major change from the previous regulating structure that was in place. The FCC was further tasked with breaking up some of the communication monopolies that had developed by 1934. At the risk of editorializing, we could do with a bit of that breaking up these days. Beyond managing the technical aspects of communication, the FCC was officially imbued with the authority to restrict content it deemed indecent by the Supreme Court decision in FCC v. Pacifica in 1978. Justice John Paul Stevens wrote for the majority, explaining why broadcast media did not receive the same level of First Amendment protection as print media. First, the broadcast media have established a uniquely pervasive presence in the lives of all Americans, not only in public, but also in the privacy of the home, where the individual's right to be left alone plainly outweighs the First Amendment rights of an intruder. Because the broadcast audience is constantly tuning in and out, Prior warnings cannot completely protect the listener or viewer from unexpected program content. To say that one may avoid further offense by turning off the radio when he hears indecent language is like saying that the remedy for an assault is to run away after the first blow. One may hang up on an indecent phone call, but that option does not give the caller a constitutional immunity or avoid a harm that has already taken place. Other forms of offensive expression may be withheld from the young without restricting the expression at its source. It's worth noting that the court's majority in Pacifica was a narrow 5-4. to four. 
and many legal scholars still believe that the FCC's authority to regulate indecency actually violates the First Amendment. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. If my gentle listener has been paying attention, they will have noticed that a lot of the censor regulations are biased toward gender, race, or the mixing of races. This is both a reflection of its time and an exacerbating feature. While I pride myself on my skills at research, few things compare to a first-hand account. With that in mind, welcome my guest today. You've heard me mention her a number of times. My own mother, on-air radio personality, Joe Christie. Good morning, gentle listeners, or afternoon, or evening, or wherever you happen to be. This is Joe Christie. I am mother to the remarkable Moxie LaBouche. She has asked me to come in and give some details about what it was like for females to be in the media back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I worked Montreal, upstate New York, Daytona, Orlando, and Tampa, and had a wonderful time. I was on the air for over two and a half decades which was a last-minute decision in high school. Instead of going to medical school, the band I sang in decided we'd go to radio school. So off to Columbus, Ohio, we went to Career Academy of Broadcasting. The first day, there were about 30 girls there amongst the 60 or 70 men. And by the second week, there were two girls and 45 men. I was hired right out of school, halfway through school, and when I called my instructors to ask them whether I should take the job or finish school, they said, grab it, because in 1968, there were no female disc jockeys that had a show. Everybody that was female that was on the air was doing news or weather. 
Interviewing came very naturally. Working with music came very naturally. But it was a fight uphill all the way. Females on the air were, I don't know, considered to be background noise. There were separate guidelines and, a, and separate bars were set for the females and the guys. I was pregnant with my first daughter. We rock and rolled every afternoon, prime time, in Daytona Beach, Florida. And I was told by my manager that I could not wear jeans and a station promotional t-shirt like the guys. I had to dress professionally. A lot of those guys wore that same t-shirt and those same jeans three to four days in a row. At least I showered. Speaking of my manager and the pregnancy, this man had the audacity to threaten to fire me if I were to MC the Miss Daytona pageant while pregnant. Now this was the same year that Carol Burnett and Vicki Lawrence were on the air, and Vicki Lawrence was pregnant with her first child. And I had been, as a teenager, in the Miss Daytona contest and the Miss Teenage America pageant, but I had to dress like a lady on the radio. The Equal Opportunity Act gave the radio and television stations a quota for not only female employees, but minority female employees. I mentored two or three young black female jocks, and they were good, and they would have been excellent. The Equal Opportunity Act. Managers and program directors started interviewing and seeking out minority females just so they would be minority females and they could chalk it off their list to ignore a woman's talents to grab the first girl that walked into the room and as far as discrimination a lot of the men found it necessary and permissible to hassle and make fun of the women for being women while they were doing their show. I saw this on the air. I saw this at concerts and personal appearances from my fellow employees, mostly the older guys, whether it was jealousy or just their personalities. Equal pay for equal jobs never came into it. I was doing primetime radio, the number one show with women from 18 to 35, which is what they want. That is the prime demographic. And I was making less than any man in the station. When I approached my manager for a raise, after I found out, he said, well, they have families. Oh, really? And what do you call my mother and my daughter? 
It didn't register and made absolutely no difference whatsoever. So I took to doing disco in a club five nights a week right after I got off the air. But being a woman on the air was a very warm, comfortable place to be. You had to fight to get there and push yourself forward and fit in that crack that narrowly opened up. But once you were there, you could use your talent for everything it was worth. And the listeners responded. It was like you were their sister, their daughters, their mother, because it was so cool and so wonderful. Thank you, Moxie, for inviting me along. And thank you, gentle listeners, for giving me your ear today. Thanks, Mom. Now, back to the FCC. Although that case, FCC versus Pacifica, came about due to modern-day wise man George Carlin's seven dirty words you can't say on the radio. The court's ruling provided a rationale for later television broadcast censorship. Here are some of my favorite moments in the corseting of the boob tube. In 1942, Tweety Bird debuted in A Tale of Two Kitties. Animator Bob Clampett originally drew him without feathers, but the Hayes office found the plucked bird to be a little too naked for their liking. So Clampett covered Tweety in yellow plumage. Clampett didn't let that pass quietly, though. In that episode, a cat yells to his partner, Give me the bird! To which the other cat responds, If the Hayes office would only let me, I'd give you the bird all right. 1952 marked comedy legend Lucille Ball's actual pregnancy being incorporated into I Love Lucy, with one minor omission. The word, pregnant, wasn't allowed on the air. Instead, the show used euphemistic phrases like with child and expecting. The earliest use of the word pregnant on air that I can find is from a 1962 episode of The Dick Van Dyke Show, where it's used in reference to a cat. Bonus fact, baby Ricky Ricardo was 12 hours old the first time he appeared on I Love Lucy. Elvis's first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1956 was seen by 60 million viewers, about 80% of households with a TV. His hips were not seen by as many people. After his cover of Little Richard's Ready Teddy, complete with soon-to-be trademark gyrations, the camera switched to a close-up of his face, so as not to overstimulate the American public. By the time he appeared on the show for the third time in 1957, he was only shown from the waist up. On 1959's dramatic anthology series Playhouse 90, an episode titled Judgment at Nuremberg had all references to the gas chamber eliminated from its reenactment of Nazi war crime trials. This was done at the behest of the show's sponsor, the American Gas Association. The humble belly button was cause for vexation in the mid-1960s. Marianne from Gilligan's Island, Jeannie from I Dream of Jeannie, and Gidget were all barred from bearing their navels. 
actress Mariette Hartley received the same treatment in a 1966 episode of Star Trek, but Gene Roddenberry got his revenge in 1973 when he cast Hartley in the pilot of Genesis 2 and gave her two belly buttons. Bonus fact, in addition to having TV's first interracial kiss, Star Trek was also the first show to use hell as a swear word. Naughty navels weren't half as much bother for censors as the ever-necessary but mysteriously non-existent toilet. The Brady Bunch had six kids sharing a bathroom with no toilet in it. The pilot episode for Leave It to Beaver was almost pulled in 1957 because of its plot, wherein the boys mail-order a baby alligator and are forced to hide it in the tank of the family's toilet. CBS finally decided the show could air, but only if all shots that included the toilet seat were removed, leaving only the top of the tank, making it the first toilet shown on TV, if only in part. The first instance of a toilet in action came in a 1971 episode of All in the Family, but again, only partially. The toilet is heard, but not seen, to flush. Even talking about toilets was taboo. Jack Parr left his job as host of The Tonight Show after a joke he made about the WC was cut by censors. That's not my phrasing. It's his. He didn't even say water closet, which must be polite. It's British. And the censors still said it was obscene. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I'll leave you with a few examples of surprising moments of not-censorship. The miniseries Roots was allowed to run unedited, including its full frontal nudity in 1977, owing to the severity of the subject matter in the story of American slavery. The same pass was given to the 1997 airing of Schindler's List. The king of profanity, the F-word, has even gone over the airwaves without fine, such as when U2 frontman Bono used it as a happy adjective during an awards ceremony, though the FCC did issue a stern warning. Hey, what's the difference between Bono and God? God doesn't walk around all day acting like he's Bono. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word gash. Gash. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.